Well, open with me in your Bibles to the book of James. The book of James chapter five will be in verses one through six this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles around the room on the banister. And by the way, every Sunday we have Bibles available to you to have at the Connection Center, at the Book Nook, and down front when the service is over. So take advantage of that if you like. The book of James is five chapters long and we are on the home stretch as now we break into chapter five. I'll be with you for two more sermons and then Ryan will pick up where I leave off with a sermon or two to close things up. James has been like a really healthy meal. Some of it has been hard to swallow. But all of it God has given to us in James has been rich and it's been really good for us and it's been filling. I hope that you can say that by God's grace. Well, what we're about to read sure looks hard to swallow. Sure sounds hard to hear. Sure looks hard to receive. I'm reminded of a bit of advice given to university professors about how to write their students to make sure they don't receive correction as too harsh. For example, instead of saying, you did not turn in your assignment on time and therefore you will be penalized, a professor might choose rather to say, the assignment was not turned in on time and therefore there will be a penalty. James has no time for that kind of thing in the text that we're about to read. These are very strong words that we're stepping into now. But at the same time, if we're hearing them right, they're also very sweet words, and you'll see what I mean. James chapter five, verses one through six. Let's read together. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in these last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's think for a moment about inequities in our world. Inequities in this world. The world is filled with them. Many of these are natural. People are born in different places at different times and to different families, which have different histories, genetics, traditions, habits, and aptitudes, which lead to different possibilities for vocation and standard of living. And all of these are more or less morally neutral. These differences, even as some of them entail particularly difficulties, should be leveraged for one another's good. Not a reason for envy or one-upmanship, but for service to one another. And a healthy culture will embrace certain inequities as natural, inevitable, and beneficial. And our culture gets this right a lot more than it likes to get it, give itself credit for. But there are some inequities that all good people must reject that Christians must reject. There are some inequities which are morally repulsive. 
when one person in any one of a thousand terrible and cruel ways, individual or systemic, oppresses another. For example, when a landowner, in James' example, withholds wages from his laborers to their detriment and even, perhaps, to their death. This is not a sermon about race, but it is a sermon that does touch on oppression and a variety of other things, including fraud and wealth. And so who can't think about our own nation's past sin of enslaving Africans? Landowners should have a certain ring to it. It's texts like this that confronted the consciences of Christians in previous generations and lit them to seek the abolition of slavery. I have a pastor friend serving in a small town in South Carolina. It's a very affluent town, one of the wealthiest in the countries. It's also a very historic town, one of the most historic, and some of the homes live African-American families that have lived in these homes for generations and generations, many of them impoverished, but they have this home. Well, there's a law on the books that allows these homes to be sold on the decision of even one relative, anyone in the lineage of the original owners. And the sale is then split between anyone connected with those original family members, regardless of whether they've ever been in the home. And so real estate agents, as I recall from the conversation, are looking for detached relatives, even relatives in prison, who have everything to gain by signing away the home to the market and for sale. Effectively rejecting poor, ejecting poor families from their homes. Cruelty. This is an example of one way in which the spirit of abuse in this passage comes over in our own day. Well, what does God make of this? What does the father make of this when those who are oppressed are his own children? And what are we to do? Well, James 5, 1 through 6 will be strong and hard to swallow for anyone who has built all or even part of their life on fraud. It will be sweet for anyone who has been the victim of fraud. All of us need all of what James has to say this morning. We'll go with a super simple outline. Here it is. The cry of the oppressor who will see misery and the cry of the oppressed whose misery is seen. But before we get into it, we need to settle the question of who exactly James is talking to. When we're reading this, we might not think that that question is all that important, or we might think that the answer is obvious, but I'd submit to you that we need some reflection. Knowing who he's railing against will determine how we need to hear and not hear these words. When he says, come here, you rich, is he talking to all wealthy people? No, he's not. He's talking about the wealthy whose wealth is ill-gotten, in particular those who have trampled over others, particularly the vulnerable, in order to get their wealth. Job was an exceptionally wealthy man and he was called righteous. And before this book is out, James will speak well of Job. James sees a danger in riches though, so make no mistake, they come with built-in temptations against which most of us are not able easily in our flesh to stand. Its pursuit, its use, and its enjoyment is risky. It always has been, it always will be. 
The wealthy whose wealth is ill-gotten. That's who he's speaking to in terms of their behavior. What about in terms of their belief? Or put another way, is he writing to Christians? We might say so. Christians are not excluded from the temptations to egregious sins, and the wealthy in James's day would have been vulnerable to the sins of their class. And he is, after all, writing his letter to Christians. And we know that some of them are wealthy, and he's called some brothers in the paragraphs even before and after this one, where he's called them also to submit to the Lord, to pray and say, if the Lord wills, things you say to Christians, when you're talking to Christians. But that's exactly what makes this paragraph a bit different. James doesn't say brothers, he says you rich. He doesn't say pray or submit to the Lord. He goes Old Testament prophet on them and promises certain judgment. Things you don't say when you're talking to a Christian. As with the Old Testament prophets, there is an implied promise of mercy for repentance, but when the New Testament warns Christians, it never does so in this kind of vivid, certain judgment fashion. So I don't think that he's writing, or I should say railing against Christians in our passage this morning. But if he's not railing against Christian oppressors, then what is going on here? Didn't he expect Christians to be the ones to read this? Remember how James began his letter. Flip over to James chapter one. Don't forget how he began in chapter, in verse two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here in chapter five, our passage this morning, James doesn't write to condemn Christians, but to see them complete by encouraging them in their steadfastness in a real trial that they're going through. James is like a man on the street with a megaphone in a country in turmoil, calling down judgment on the oppressive elite class None of the elites are there to hear, but everyone in earshot needs to hear it. It's comforting, and everyone needs to be warned not to cross over. And so this passage warns all of us of the eternal spiritual danger of ill-gotten gain. And it strengthens those who belong to Christ who are victims of ill-gotten gain for steadfastness in that trial. Verses one through three the cry of the oppressor who will see misery. The cry of the oppressor who will see misery. James gives a command in verse one. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Weeping and howling is not a sound this bunch is used to making. So why are these rich landowners told to weep and howl? What's there to cry about? Don't they have it good? Well, of course they have it good for now. But James speaks a word about their future, a word so certain that he can speak in the past tense. Verses two and three. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. 
and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. These rich have thought forward. They've concerned themselves carefully with the future. And they did something about it. As a protection against the future, they stored up riches for themselves. They, verse 3, laid up treasure in the last days. And just look at their stockpile. Look at their garments, clothes, and more clothes. Beautiful, extra, expensive clothes. And look at their stockpile and how it's full of gold and silver, the best of metals. Those metals don't rust and corrode like other metals. Oh, they may tarnish, but they retain their purity. For the long term, these really are the best and wisest and choicest investments, and they've made them. These are the kinds of incorruptible things that they have stored up for the future. So how does it go for them? How does it go? Really bad, actually. What happens to their garments? Food for moths. Food for moths. Of all the living thing that one's treasure could feed, it's hard to imagine a lower creature than the moth. I hate all of the moths in the whole world. All of them. And the only thing lower than a moth is the belly of a moth. And that's where their fine garments are going to go. And nothing against fine garments, but they can't be trusted for more than the temporary covering they are. Leave any garment, however expensive, outside in the elements for a day, and it's ruined. So how can these be trusted for security of any kind, let alone security against the future? But gold and silver, right? This is different. These are secure. The world's very best metals. What happens to gold and to silver? Corroded. Rusted out. Gold and silver can't rust, you say. Oh, well, James knows this, and that's his point. Against the horizon of eternity, even our most incorruptible materials are utterly corrupted and made waste. But it gets worse. Not only will their riches get eaten by insects and elements, but their riches will actually eat them. This word here for corrosion is the same for poison, so the tongue from chapter three is full of deadly poison, and their riches will eat them like poison. Just like poison, it will eat their flesh like fire. In other words, they have worked very hard to secure the future, yet lo and behold, not only are their riches not will not save them from a future of trouble, but their riches will bring them a future full of trouble because of how those riches were acquired and the extent to which those riches were trusted. To the extent that riches are loved, they will let you down. More precisely, to the extent to which riches are loved, they will take you down, James is saying. The Bible does not say not God's Bible, that money is the root of all evil. It does say that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So however you got your wealth, material or monetary, do not love your wealth. I subscribe to a Twitter feed called Abandoned Places. It's one of my favorites. Feet is filled with the most beautiful, creepy places on planet Earth. 
old mansions, warehouses that made things, theme parks, cars, the stuff of the good life, corroded by the elements and eaten by the earth. If you're not a Christian, and if you've made money your highest good, be warned this morning, these words are for you. Nothing you can get your hands on in this life can protect, protect you for the next. In fact, depending on how you get your hands on things and how tightly you hold on to them, it may end up an evidence against you. There is only misery to come without the mercy of Christ, so please keep listening for how you may lay hold of the mercy of Christ. Christian, there are a bunch of things that you should be busy doing with money. You should be making it, saving it, spending it, investing it, and giving it. But whatever you do, whatever you do, do not love it. For the love of money is the love of this world, for its currency is only good here. And if you love it more than the Lord or people, you will inevitably trade it, trade both in order to get it. And you're on a path toward the hearers that James is speaking against. Well, the rich of James's letter have worked creatively and constantly to avoid misery of any kind. But they have been perfectly willing to bring misery in the process to others. Weeping and howling is not a sound this bunch is used to making, except when they're making other people weep and howl. So exactly how have they trampled others in their pursuit of their great wealth? This is the question that brings us to the second half of our message today. The cry of the oppressed whose misery is seen. The cry of the oppressed whose misery is seen. I say their misery is seen because of what we see in verse four. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. It is a sin under normal circumstances to delay payment, to pay less than is due, to withhold payment altogether for manipulative, cruel purposes. I imagine that all three were happening. The landowners hear the cries of their people, but they do not care. But what they have not considered is that the Lord cares and he has very, very sensitive ears. They did not listen to the people's cries Neither clearly did they listen to what the Lord said through Moses, Deuteronomy 24. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry out against the Lord, you be guilty of sin. They did not listen to the wisdom of the Proverbs, Proverbs 10. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. Or Proverbs 21, the getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. And they did not listen to the message of the prophets, 
Jeremiah 22:13. Woe to him who builds a house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbors serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. And they did not consider the heart of God in the Psalms, Psalm 69. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Psalm 109, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. But soon enough, they will learn that their neglect was a big, big miscalculation in making preparations for the future. Verses one through three describe the misery that's coming to the rich. And verses four through six give the reason for the misery that we've read described. As they have inflicted men in misery, so they should expect misery. So why are the laborers crying out? Why are they crying out? That question is gonna frame the rest of this section and it has three answers. And with each answer, we'll be warned and we'll be comforted for the passage does both. First, verse four, the laborers are crying out because their rich landowners are defrauding them, defrauding them. This was what the rich did to get their riches. It meant that their workers, who were themselves exceptionally poor, were defrauded from what little that was theirs. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. Their wealth was ill-gotten, and that ill-gotten gain will be an evidence against them. So here's a warning. Do not pursue ill-gotten gain. Don't do it. It's theft, it's stealing, it's not worth it. Now that might seem like a somewhat boring and obvious takeaway. I mean, every child knows you're not supposed to steal. You just don't steal. Don't take that from your brother. I'm not a thief. But this is a potent verse for what is actually a surprisingly sneaky sin. I've started eating chia seeds. Anyone else eat chia seeds? I heard they're a superfood. Drew told me that I should eat them. So I eat these things. Um, there's a lot inside them. Well, this is a Bible superfood right here. You can pass right by it, it's small, but it's packed. It's not all we need, but it's packed with lots and lots that we do need. So we're gonna spend some time on it. And we'll see that we may not get off so easy just because we're not first century land owners. There should be a little something in here for everyone and maybe a big something for some. To start, we should recognize that James is writing to people in a very, very different socioeconomic situation. Very different from our own. We find it in some underdeveloped parts of the world but not here. Just think of how impossible it would be for an owner of a business to get away with straight up withholding wages ongoingly as though holding his workers hostage. Not only would the force of law come down on them, but the force of the market would probably already be coming down on them. These are designed and built and there are designed and built in punishments for this very kind of thing. 
And in James's day, you had, very, you had a very wealthy elite class and a very poor lower class. And the lower class was largely, utterly dependent on the upper class. There was no energetic and independent middle class where most of us comfortably live. There were no cars to take a person to the next town for an alternative job. There was the landowner and his laborers in many cases. So the potential for abuse was great and the reality of abuse was often, often enough, at least in this case, egregious. But that doesn't mean there isn't carryover, significant carryover to our own day. We're just more sophisticated and because of common grace, usually more restrained. In prep for thinking through this really important business text, I reached out to a number of believing friends here and, and elsewhere who spend their days in business in different fields. Several opened up their replies in the same way. Well, there are some things that you could imagine happening in my field, but they basically can't happen. They're very hard to get away with. But there are some things in my field that when people are creative, and they're able to hide things that they can get away with. And they describe for me the kinds of things that can go on in their field. So on the topic of fraud and ill-gotten gain, let me address three parties specifically. Employers, then employees, then customers. Employers, employers, do not defraud your employees. That's a takeaway. Do not defraud your employees. Your employees are part of the reason your company exists. Not just because they do work to make it exist, but because it actually exists in part for them. Don't hurt them, but help them along in life. Do not embed fine print into your hiring contracts that is purposefully confusing and predatory. I'm thinking of one story where an employee's contract was drawn up and her contract was ending with the company and so she took another job in another city and the company was so upset that she was leaving at the end of her contract that they automatically renewed her contract by a month and required her legally to pay them back for it. Fine print, never saw it. The company reserved the right to extend a contract perhaps in a circumstance like that or they took advantage of the fine print to get her. If you're a Christian, don't do that. Don't do that kind of thing. Don't use contracts to punish people for reasonable things like leaving a company. In James's day, you had very wealthy elite class, excuse me. Yeah, started reading at the wrong spot. Let me pick up here. It may be legal, but that doesn't make it ethical, what I just described. Legal fraud exists because moral fraud exists, and the law doesn't attempt to manage every single move we make So we should not be so shallow in our business ethics to be satisfied with being merely legally in the clear. Do not charge a salesperson's, do not change a salesperson's commission structure to keep from paying them the profit that you actually promised and that they rightly expect. You may have to change the commission structure for legitimate reasons at a time, but you will know when you're just wanting them to do well without doing as well. And if you're a Christian, you shouldn't manipulate your workers in that fashion. If you say you're going 50-50 with the salesperson, don't manipulate the books to make it look like they're getting their share when what's really going on is they're getting 40 or 35%. They just can't tell. 
And if, you're, and if you're in a company where there's an agreement, formal or informal, that you will share some of the profits from a good year from hard work in business in the form of bonuses, especially if you've been projecting a carrot of that reward to make them work, then honor them with what you have said would come when the time comes. If ever you find yourself making sure a decision isn't written down or typed in an email, you might be trying to hide something. You might be trying to sin. Positively, with your business, look for opportunities to develop less than ideal workers as you're able, but workers for whom this job could be a crucial life move if they'll give it the effort. And finally, and this one's tricky, as frankly so much of this is, I'm speaking in black and white terms, but you've got to work this out in your context. Observe with attention the fine line between squeezing more productivity out of your people, which is important for your business and competition, and squeezing the life out of your people. Remember that your business is about making the world a little better, and it doesn't do that by making the lives of some worse. That's employers to employees. Some advice from a man who isn't a businessman. So we might stop there, and actually that would be fine. But this word about ill-gotten gain is good for us. It comes up rarely enough in this direct fashion, so let's take a few more helpings of this hard-to-swallow food. Remember, we're in a different socioeconomic situation than James's readers in the first century. Common grace through good laws and competition mean employers don't have the kind of power that they would have had in James's day, and that's a good thing. And thankfully, it's also true that laborers have a lot more power in our day, but that power can be abused. So employees, a word to you, do not defraud your employer. Don't defraud your employers. Your employer is a gift to you from God that requires your honor and your respect. Do not have someone else punch you in when you aren't there so communicating to the company that you were to be paid wages that you do not deserve. That's defrauding your employer. Do not call in sick when you are not actually sick if they understand that you are sick and calling in. If you're trusted to work away from the office, then when you're away from the office, be working when it's expected that you're working and properly account for the hours that you work and do not misrepresent them. Do not take business away from your company and keep it for yourself on the side, secretly hiding it. And don't steal leads away from your company when you leave, if it's understood that you would not. And a word to employers and employees together now. The only way that either of you make a living is if customers trust you. And so that trust is sacred, protect it, and nurture it. Do not embed fine print into your contracts with your customers requiring absurd things from them in order for you to fulfill your part of the contract, which they fully expect. Absurd things which they couldn't understand if they read it, but which you know are defensible in court. Ethically, even if not legally, that's fraud. So don't do it. Do not take advantage of the elderly. This strikes very close to what James is hitting. They do not need the retirement plan that will bring you the greatest commission if they don't need the retirement plan that will bring you the greatest commission. Give special care that when somebody is coming to you as both a consultant and a salesperson to steward their trust by advising them according to what 
is proper and best for them. It's what your company is there for and they're trusting you. Love them as you would love yourself. Don't force them to unknowingly love you as you love yourself. Don't take advantage of families in crisis. Don't churn someone's account telling your system that somebody has made a commitment that they know nothing about in order to reach a bonus. And I wouldn't care if it's even a small commitment that they know nothing about that you don't feel will harm them and it'll make you $5,000 if you're misrepresenting their intentions and commitments for financial gain. That's ill-gotten gain. It's a form of theft. And do not hire undocumented workers as a way of gaining an advantage in your marketplace. Not only is it illegal, but it incentivizes others to leave their families and communities in foreign lands at great risk to themselves and is a form of cruelty even if it seems right. One more bite. Just one more bite. Customers, and of course, that's all of us. I don't know how you get away with not being a customer. We can't move on from the topic of ill-gotten gain without addressing customers. We too, every customer can defraud. Can defraud. So here's a word for us. Ill-gotten gain isn't just monetary, but can be material. A service or a product obtained by unjust means. Do not duplicate copywritten material. Do not share a subscription to what are always expensive, contract-bound, provided services. Do not lie about eligibility for a certain discount that is offered and not to you. Do not sue a company over a petty infraction to take advantage of their vulnerability and even their readiness to deal with petty infractions. Everything comes at a cost. The seller gets to decide the price tag, decide if it's worth it, and make your decision. And don't commit insurance fraud. I know the insurance company is like the exact opposite of an impoverished person. But don't take money that isn't yours. A wonderful story of a lady who came to me. And uh, the night before her car was stolen. And had taken the advice of friends. And told the insurance company that the car was locked. But in fact the car was not locked. And praise the Lord, there was the conviction of sin. And the next day, a call to the insurance company to say, no, the car was unlocked. And guess what? We have the assurance from God's word that he will bless us and reward us for whatever is lost when we are upright. Not monetarily, but spiritually. It's right by the Lord. Ill-gotten gain is not worth it, whatever the cost Consider that many small infractions, I've mentioned some, do compound. The U.S., where we live, has been a pretty good place to do business, to buy and sell and be a consumer. As there's been a pretty general consensus that being a decent person is right and a consensus about what a decent person is. Someone who tells the truth when, even if they're not getting punished for not telling the truth. But it's changing a bit. The housing crisis of 08 was the result of the combination of bad laws and a thousand crooked decisions by people up and down banks and economy in the economy. Small people, big people making big and small bad decisions, betting against people's failures and putting them in very vulnerable positions. My mother was a realtor during that time and she was saying this has got to burst at some point. There were people being approved for loans they could not could not handle, putting them in very vulnerable positions. 
Proverbs 21.6, the gaining of treasure by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. So be warned, it'll be an evidence against you. What does James say to those who have been defrauded? To those who have been defrauded? A word of comfort. Your cry reaches the ears of the Lord. It reaches the ears of the Lord. That injustice was seen by the sovereign of the universe and that injustice will not go without injustice. You've found yourself, many of you, in downright horrifying positions where in one moment with the wrong advice and the wrong decision in a signature, your entire life, its course, is changed by an obligation made at bad counsel by a crook. Or worse, the Lord sees it. You will do well to seek legal recourse, but you may not see a resolution in this lifetime, and you'll know that as much. The first reason the laborers are crying out is because their landowners are defrauding them. Now verse five. The second reason the landowners, the land, sorry, the laborers are crying out is because their rich landowners neglect them. Neglect them. This is what the rich did with their riches. Verse five. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. They've lived on earth in luxury. They've indulged in the self, which by nature is an other excluding way to spend money. All wealth is just leverage to get and to do what you care about. And so if you care about yourself and that's it, then all your wealth will be directed at yourself, which meant that the poor were not properly cared for because the wealthy did not care for the poor. So here's a warning. Enjoy your wealth, but do not indulge yourself with your wealth. It's not even in your best interest. He uses this image of fattening yourself up for slaughter. You can picture a cow living the life, living the dream on the green pasture, chewing up the grass, eating whatever they eat getting nice and fat and then following the line into the hole and off comes the head. Had no idea. Fattening himself up for slaughter. That's the picture here. The more you acquire, recognize that you will always want more. It's a kind of addiction, a blinding addiction and like the hoarder with great piles in their home that fall on them and kill them. God forbid. But it's like that. You store things up, amass treasure, and eventually they're evidence against you that all along your heart has been tied to the world. Beware the dead end of amassing great wealth. And let me say a word to college students. Remember this. Pursue your degree with all your heart. Pursue your career with all your heart. But remember that no career counselor and no training manager at a new company is going to counsel your soul. They will tell you everything you need to know for great success. And you'll need everything they're going to tell you, but you will need more. So find good people in your church, this church, who have handled wealth and success well and learned from them. And let me tell you, there are many, many godly, humble, faithful, careful people in our congregation who have handled success and wealth well.
Spend your wealth on that which is truly valuable, which includes people. Wealth is leverage to get good things done for good reasons. Now to those who have been neglected, a word of comfort. The Lord hears your cries and he has a message of good news. The gospel is the message of a savior who did not indulge his riches, but freely gives his riches to us. And no man can take them from you or withhold them from you or separate you from them. The rich live in luxury on earth, but earth is nothing compared to what Christ knew with the father. And what does scripture say of Christ, but that he, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8. What does scripture say of Christ, but that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2. The earth is nothing compared to the luxury that Christ left And the earth is nothing compared to the luxury that Christ promises when he says in Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that is something that earthly wealth cannot buy, but it is something that you and I can freely receive through faith in Jesus Christ who lived for us and died for us on the cross and raised to be this generous with us. Why are the laborers crying out? They're crying out because their rich landowners are defrauding them and because their rich landowners are neglecting them. And finally, verse six, They're crying out because their rich landowners are crushing them, crushing them. This is what the rich do to keep their riches, to keep their place. James says in verse six, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. It's been said the only thing worse than murdering a person is murdering a person who doesn't resist you. Using the legal system probably to hold people in their place and keep you in yours It's probably the case that these landowners were doing that, using it against the poor, perhaps from withheld wages that they can't pay their debt so they're in prison, crushing them with the law. In saying they murder the righteous person, he may be speaking hyperbolically. He may be referring to a known instance or instances when people die in prison where they are imprisoned for unjust reasons. So here's a warning See where the love of money leads. See where it leads. In service to the slave master of money, you hide and misrepresent and manipulate information. Eventually, that master of money will demand more. And to protect yourself, you may be driven in time to do obscene things, even if it started with a computer trick at work. And to those who have been crushed, here's a word of comfort for you. Again, the Lord hears your cry and hear this, that there is another who was crushed, who knew an unjust trial before he was betrayed by another's love of silver pieces, who did not resist and who himself was killed. Look to him, the Lord Jesus, 
He defended the marginalized, and so must we. Our belief in heaven does not, uh, does not limit, but only strengthens our commitment to the proper treatment of all human beings. My pastor buddy in South Carolina, this town that I mentioned at the head of the sermon, he's working with area pastors and lawmakers to help craft better legislation, get these laws off the books to protect vulnerable families on his street and community. Jesus Christ, when he was oppressed, did not resort to violence when he was violated or crushed. It was not Christ's way and it's not ours. And so we wait on the Lord who will make the world's cruel oppressors know the misery that they deserve. It sounds unchristian to say it, but we believe in the wrath of God and leaving room for it and not taking it ourselves, but waiting on God's time and his way. To close, let's consider two approaches to money portrayed in two contrasting characters toward the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Both views turn on what one does with money in relation to Jesus and both reveal what one or who one loves the most. Listen to Matthew 26. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as she reclined at, he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in her memory. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Father, we are sobered by James's very strong words. And we confess that while you have saved us, we have not loved you and treasured you for the great God and Savior that you are but we have sinned in our love of this world and of material things and of money, and we confess that. And Father, we confess that our only hope before you is through a savior who dies for these kinds of sins, Jesus Christ, who's the only righteous one who went to the cross for us. We thank you for new hearts and the spirit that convicts us of this sin, and we pray for help to obey you and to seek you and to treasure you and to lay treasures up in heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.